are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. I hope you all are well. I have, a, I have a really great conversation for you this week. I got to sit down with high-altitude mountaineer Jeanette McGill. Jeanette is the first South African woman to summit Manaslu, which is part of the Nepalese Himalayas and is the eighth highest mountain in the world at over 8,000 meters or 26,000 feet. She was also the first ever South African to climb the Himalayan mountain Dwalagiri, which is another mountain that soars more than 26,000 feet into the air. She also leads treks to Everest Base Camp, which is how I discovered her. Back in April, I made a post in our Hit Play Not Pause group asking what cool things people had been doing. You know, race season had just started. And I was like, hey, I just did back-to-back gravel events. Woo, what is everyone doing? And she posted a picture from Everest (laughs) saying, just back from leading a group to Everest Base Camp. And she told me it was the first time doing this trek perimenopausal. And though everything went well, she did have loads of quote unquote menno learnings. And I was immediately like, okay, I have to talk to this woman and get all these menno learnings from her. And boy, I'm so glad I did. Whether or not you ever, ever step foot above sea level, Jeanette has plenty of advice on managing your body temperature, hot flashes, fear, and much more. She speaks so, so beautifully. I just loved this conversation. Jeanette also offers mentorship and leads trips through her company, McGill's Mountains, in the Australian Alps and Nepal. And she is passionate about supporting others to achieve their outdoor goals. So I will put a link to that in the show notes. All right, before we get to it, quick reminder to head on over to feistymenopause.com and subscribe to my weekly newsletter if you haven't already. Each Thursday, we bring you the latest on health and fitness and hormones, so check that out. As always, you can find us at Feisty Menopause on Instagram and Facebook. You can come on over and join our ever-growing, and I mean ever-growing, we have had like a thousand women pour into this thing in the past week. Uh, private hit play not pause Facebook group and be part of all of our conversations and support there. I have an email if you'd like to reach me at hit play not pause at livefeisty.com. We have the hit replay podcast guide subscription service where you get a write up on each week's show dropped right into your inbox every Wednesday afternoon. You can check that out at feistymenopause.com as well. And as always, if you like the show, please share it with your friends and on your social media channels. The show continues to grow and it's all because of you. I appreciate it. I also appreciate the hearts of the stars and the great reviews. So thank you for those as well. All right. Speaking of thanks, quick thanks to Prevenex for their continued support of this show. I swear by their Joint Health Plus supplement, as everybody knows, it keeps my arthritic big toe in action and pain-free, and I'm not alone. I get lots of great messages from listeners about how it's working for them too, like this one I just got last week from a longtime runner. She said, I was a bit skeptical of the various health claims. I read about Prevenix, but I'm thrilled to report that I did experience relief in the pain associated with arthritis in my right foot. I've been an avid runner for nearly 20 years and have had arthritis in my foot for the past three years, but the Prevenex is offering me relief from the pain, which is great. 
I hear you. So thank you, Prevenex, for your continued support of Hit Play Not Pause. All right, enough of me. Let's have a word or two about these awesome sponsors and get on with the show. Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, plus even more cutting-edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high-quality ingredients in one reasonably priced shake. I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. As a lifelong runner and cyclist, I am stoked to announce that Tifosi Optics has come on as a podcast sponsor. The beauty of Tifosi sports glasses is that they hit all the marks. They are shatterproof polycarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance and complete eye protection. They stay put. They have little hydrophilic rubber nose pads that actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they stay secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in sauna-like conditions. No matter what sport you do, they have a shade for your activity, including tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, and just hanging out at the beach. And they are super reasonably well-priced, which is very hard to find in a sea of overpriced eyewear. And they just look freaking rad. So head on over to tifosioptics.com and use the code FM, capital F, and capital M, like Feisty Menopause, number 20, FM20, to get 20% off your order today. I'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. All right, Jeanette, I am very excited to talk to you today about all of this adventurous sport. Me as well. Thank you, Celine. <laughs> so before we get into all of it, let's talk a bit about your background, uh, because I find it all, frankly, remarkable. Like you have climbed mountains, which is something I don't do, but I am super, super like a fangirl of and very intrigued by all over the planet and have been among a handful of women to really carve you know, this high mountaineering path. So can you just like give us a little short theater of your life? Like, how did you get into all of this? Absolutely. Thank you so much. And it's a real treat to to bring the topic of high altitude mountaineering to your your audience and your platform. And I'm really looking forward to the conversation. But um, a little bit around my journey is that I suppose I've always been in the outdoors. Very fortunate to have grown up in South Africa where I was taken into the outdoors from a very young age. I, in fact, was going through a couple of things um, when I moved to Australia and found a postcard that had been sent. And I was so happy that I'd got to the top of Lion's Head. Lion's Head is next to Table Mountain. 
And so I suppose that classes is my first formal peak, and that was when I was eight years old. <laughs> so I've really been been at it. And um, the nurturing environment for me was the Mountain Club of South Africa. It was a place where I could go on weekends and, and really get to grips with being in the outdoors. And I quickly became a leader in the Mountain Club of South Africa as well. In fact, I also did a, a sum when I was recently in South Africa. I'll be... An, I'll be a member of the club for 36 years this year. So I joined under age. I actually snuck into the club, but younger than one should be. But um, it was really a formative environment for myself because um, in South Africa, we have the Drakensberg. And um, I became the first female leader in 24 years to lead groups of people for the Drakensberg during their July camp. And um, the reason why I bring that up in a way is that it just shows that it, from a South African context, in terms of gender diversity, at that time, there was still, you know, not the same amount of participation by women, you know, to be the first female leader at the age of 25 years old or so, to be the first one in, in the past 24 years, that was um, quite significant. But I love my leading, and that's what was the foundation for the rest of my, my journey, as it were, um, because from there, I started doing expeditions in Peru. Um, I've been to Bolivia, but I also became a leader and a guide for a program in South Africa called Felt and Flay, which effectively became Outward Bound. And so the opportunity to be a chief instructor there. And once again, you know, I was one of two women in the 45-year career history of this whole program to be a leader on a boys course. And so I was um, the outdoor instructor for one of the boys courses. And um, these were the, all the sort of the skills that I would impart into others to make them more sure-footed into the outdoors but then fast forward you know went on and became the first South African woman to summit Manuslu which is the eighth highest mountain in the world and um, no other South African had climbed Dalagiri which is the seventh highest mountain in the world and so then I went on and climbed Dalagiri as well that journey was around just trying to see if my body could acclimate to 8,000 meters above sea level. You know, the high altitude mountains can't be taken for granted. They all go into the death zone. And it's about understanding if one's body can adapt to that high altitude. And so therefore, you know, my entire mountaineering journey has been one of exploration. And it's also now one where I like to use my learnings to support and assist other people attain their goals. Did you during this whole time run into skepticism, pushback, sexism, you know, whatever you want to call it, like that you were one of the few females in the space that people, did people doubt you that you could do it? Did they have reservations about you? I think fortunately I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm an endomorph. I'm tall. I'm five foot eight muscular. So I was always physically suited to the task. And so I think that that sort of did help me, but at the same time, what really happens is that you end up having to downplay when you are feeling tired or when you are feeling sort of less than. So you've always got to chase to be one of the guys. So I think the cohort of women that sort of went into the mountaineering space in my time, we're very good at being one of the guys. And I think sometimes one loses a bit of oneself in that process because you've just got to suck it up, as it were. How did you deal with your periods and stuff? It's always been you know, one of those hard spaces in the outdoors. And I think back in when I started, you had to be silent. You just couldn't talk about it. So it was isolating. It was it was a bit lonely as well because it's not something which we were helped by 
any of the other older women in the area. It was a case of you just need to figure this stuff out of yourself. So, you know, it was literally being able to just have extra bags, extra stuff with you. And, um, you know, you you just got to figure it out. One of the hardest environments for me now was that in the perimenopause journey, <laughs> you know, things get a lot less um, known. I was pretty regular. And then the erraticness of perimenopause really bit me in the butt. I suppose I was on Dalagiri up at seven and a half, 7,600 meters above sea level and um, realized that there was a prop that time of the the month had come, and from a cultural perspective, the the Nepalese and the Sherpas um, really don't uh, take kindly to women being on their period because this is a country where there's this thing called menstruation huts where women, women are physically removed from society at this time of the month. And so this nexus of Western women being in the mountain together with the local environment can make it quite awkward sometimes for us women on the mountains. But nevertheless, I got up and I was sharing a one a, a two man tent with two other Sherpas. So they were, we were squished in, and um, wasn't a pleasant night. And I'd realised that um, my body had decided to take things on its own, and my period had started, and I had nothing with me except I was in my down suit, which was fortunately an orange down suit. <laughs> and um, you know, these are the realities. You've just got to, unfortunately suck it up and the weather wasn't conducive to a summit push so I did come down to base camp but um, that's a long way of answering your question and so far as I do think that the narrative is very different these days and I come from an era where we had to be very quiet and and just suck these things up on our own which is disappointing sometimes. I, I have to wonder like what did you do though did you just make a makeshift pad for yourself in that situation? Well, I actually, on the Dalagiri situation, I literally had nothing. One doesn't climb on a summit push with um, extra means and things like that. Yes, there was a bit of um, toilet paper, but not a lot. And so I literally, it was probably one of the worst ones where you've just got to let things flow, I suppose. And, um, you know, they're, they're dry cleaners. We are down suits afterwards. So, you and I suppose from a mental perspective, you just can't, let it overwhelm you. It's a case of, okay, well, there is nothing. I have nothing. Can't do anything. Um, I'm sitting at seven and a half thousand meters above sea level. I've got to get down here safely. And um, you just keep going. Does that destroy some very expensive gear or can you clean that? Like if I have that on my bike, it's not a big deal. <laughs> you know, like I just throw the it's chamois the same in the for mountaineering. Okay. It's just, it's just unpleasant and uncomfortable, you know, it's, it's not super fun. Yeah, no, thank, but, but thank you for sharing that because I just feel like this is the stuff though. Like this is the stuff that keeps women out of these spaces sometimes, right? And if there's like you, like we're talking about, if there's pure silence around it, then nobody really knows like what to do or what might happen or what. So I think it's just really important to talk about this stuff openly. Absolutely. I think to be able to pass it forward, to provide the support, but also as a female leader, I think that these are some of the things that allow us to be better leaders, especially for some of these adventure things, to be able to be the guidance, to be the support, to be able to provide some of the, you know, the know-hows to how you go about it. And of course, within the environmental context, I also think it's even more important. There is a duty on us because you do sometimes see very poor practices around how people in base camps and stuff discard this material. So I do think we have an obligation to be able to bring that into the narrative as well. Yeah, totally agree. 
Good sleep. The one thing that sets you up for a great workout and a good day is quality sleep. We talk about it all the time here on the show, which is why I'm stoked to have Lagoon Sleep as a new sponsor. Because one of the most overlooked tools in a great sleep toolbox is the thing you literally rest your head on eight hours a night, your pillow. A quality pillow is everything. Otherwise, you end up tossing, turning, punching, and folding your pillow, waking up with neck pain, and all the stuff that happens when your pillow doesn't meet your personal comfort needs. Say hello to the most comfortable sleep you've ever had with Lagoon. They start you out with a two-minute personalized pillow quiz and then pair you with your perfect pillow. I got the Otter, a cooling adjustable pillow that is perfect for side sleepers who run warm at night like I do. It is a dream. It's fully adjustable, so I was able to get the perfect loft and support, and the cooling feature is everything. As someone who turned into a furnace every evening before menopause, I appreciate that the Otter is stuffed, with shredded gel-infused memory foam, which, instead of trapping heat from my neck and head, draws it away and dissipates it. It's truly delightful. I'm a good sleeper, and Otter has taken it to the next level with both support and cooling. Put my head down, good night, Irene. My aura ring confirms what little tossing and turning I was doing is gone. The beauty of the pillow quiz is you can get the perfect pillow that you need to and make your sleep the best sleep you can have. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash hit play and take the two minute quiz to find your perfect match and then use the code hit play all caps one word for 15% off your first purchase. Sweet dreams. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are stoked to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's has unlocked the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research and creates better shoes for women's performance. Some of Hedda's special features include a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing on women's ankle bones, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and accommodate female toe shape, a more narrow and reductive heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take pressure off the Achilles, a rounded instep that creates a snug fit through the middle to match the curvature of a woman's foot and supercritical foam and a PBEX plate in the midsole to keep our legs going when the going gets tough. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for your long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've been running in the Alma Tempos and they are a pleasure to train in. You can get your own pair of Hedda's at Hedda's.com and use the code FEISTY20, that's all caps, FEISTY20, for 20% off. Check it out today. We'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. So speaking of base camps, that's where I sort of, you came into my radar. Um, you know, I had put up a pretty simple post on our hip plane out pause group asking, you know, like what cool things have people been doing? You know, race season had sort of started and I was just like, I just did back to back gravel events. And then you put up this great post, like just back from leading a group to ever space camp, <laughs> you know, and I was immediately like, okay, I think I need to talk to this person. And you said it was your first time doing this trek, perimenopausal and post pelvis injury. All went well. And you had loads of quote unquote mental learnings. And also the group was super excited to make it safely. <laughs> so of course, um, yeah, I'd love to dig into all of that. So uh, the first thing though, is like, what was that injury? So um, unfortunately last year, I spent six months flat on my back. I could <gasps> not walk. 
um, yeah, I had a severely um, strained pelvis and very bad follow-on um, nerve pain. And I literally couldn't walk 20 paces at a time. I broke my walking down 20 paces. And it was it was quite a, a journey for me to be able to be at a point where I actually physically couldn't walk. I couldn't get into the outdoors, which is my love. And um, spent six months rehabbing that. And so to be able to take, and I actually thought that I'd never be able to go back to the Himalayas. And so this particular trip to Everest Base Camp was just so beautiful after the recovery that I'd been through for this injury. Was it an acute injury? Like, did you do something? So it was a perfect storm, in fact. So it was a portion of an acute injury. So in January of 2020, just before the whole pandemic and the world going into lockdown, I took myself off on a on a solo but Sherpa-supported winter expedition to Nepal. I wanted to see how the whole winter expedition stuff does go in Nepal. And I did fall during that um, expedition. And so there was an acute injury. But then when I came back to, to Australia, we obviously all went into lockdown. And so the second portion of the perfect storm was that you end up just sitting two months. Mm-hmm. And you know, the the PT space was one that was not open for us. And so therefore, you know, I just, you know, two years of sitting or at that stage, you know, a good couple of years, a year of sitting around. I don't think my conditioning um, was really good. And then the third part of it was the fact that I went into perimenopause. So the, everything that we know now, you know, the, the dumping of the estrogen and things like that, I can see it by joining the dots backwards is that I had this perfect storm of an acute injury, which I didn't actually rehab properly and resulted in further instability in my pelvis area and my, you know, the SIJ joints. Um, Add on to that, um, then perimenopause, it just made it all worse. So therefore, when we came out of lockdown in May of last year, I was hiking and um, I then damaged it even more. And so I went from being able to walk to, yeah, this absolutely severe nerve pain and, um, went into a rehab program with um, chiropractic as well as PT. And you had mentioned when I spoke to you previously that you had worked with a former guest on our show, Heidi Armstrong, right? Yes, absolutely. Heidi was probably one of the the secret weapons to my recovery. And I think that this is the phenomenal thing about the community and the forum that, that you make available to us. Um, I had attended the Hit Play Not Pause, um, I suppose, the Feisty Menopause. Summit. What, summit, yeah, yeah, there we go. So I had um, signed up for the summit and um, I came across her material during the summit and I thought, wow, and then I scrolled through the podcast and I saw that you'd interviewed her as well and so I listened to the podcast subsequently and figured, well, I'm sure maybe she can support me and connected with Heidi. And um, I must say, part of my recovery is down to the time that I've spent with Heidi, just her knowledge of the space, the helping my brain side of things, because we were still in lockdown. I mean, um, I'd spent seven months not seeing anybody in person, just because of the, the nature of our lockdowns mm. and things. And I just think that the support that she was able to provide, the structure to my um, my rehab, she also actually helped me provide some extra resources. And so she connected me with a really good PT in Australia, who's been absolutely fundamental to my my recovery. And so for somebody who's always been active, my entire sporting career, you know, I've been 
captain of a state field hockey team. I was Colorado State squash champion. Have been a mountain biker. I've done the Cape Epic. So somebody who's come from a space of, you know, physical things my entire life to just be absolutely slayed. I've had acute injuries before. I broke my um, ankle once before, but this was different. This was chronic, just having to work with pain on a daily basis. And um, the support network that um, Heidi created for me was yeah, absolutely phenomenal. So thank you for these resources that we are now can have via this platform. So are you are you clear now of that injury? Not 100%, I would say probably about 90% or so. That was the importance of going to Everest Base Camp recently was just to test where I was in my journey. And um, I had no pain that came from the entire trek. And for me, I need to move. And so the opportunity to just be back in the Himalayas walking every day really set a really strong base for me. Um, Got other things down the line, and that requires, you know, a bit more functional fitness. And, of course, the the tips and support that come from the new book, Next Level, have been absolutely eye-opening as well to create those little micro um, sessions that the micro sessions build into the consistency, which allows to get to the next big goals. And so I think the timing of the book around the reminders of some of the functional fitness elements that we should be incorporating, I think is also really good. So I'm getting there. Um, I do have goals. And so um, I will make sure that I get to those as well. What does your training entail for something like that? Like for these big mountain trips? Yeah, big mountain trips is doing what you've got to do on the mountains and which is which is walking, which is getting your body used to the terrain. And so therefore the micro stuff is functional fitness. It's around being able to do um step ups and a range of off camber work, I suppose, from a balance perspective as well, with the weighted backpack on your back. And so therefore, you know, I do think that some of the information that's coming out of where we at now, if I'd known these things in my twenties, I do feel that this is the challenge with us women is that we get to this time of lives in the mountaineering space. And if we just aren't that strong from a pelvic and a pelvic core perspective and our legs, that's when things do get hard. And that's when people stop doing this stuff. And so I'm busy fighting with that at the moment. I know that I probably haven't done as much pre-work as I should have, but there's no time like the present they say, right? So um, being able to ensure that this whole functional core area is correct but the training I do very much is either being able to walk in the outdoors and being able to just do what you do in the mountains that's one of the biggest things is that yes you can go and do treadmill work and things like that that's all very well but the biggest learning comes from being actually in the terrain that you're going to be be doing your stuff in I think I'm one of those big proponents of being actually out in in the space that you're going to be doing your sport in um, and then, of course, some technical work, being able to augment the, the physicality of mountaineering over a long term with being able to do some rope work and some climbing work. So getting into a rock gym is important, as well as going out maybe and doing some trad um, climbing work, being on the ropes every now and again so that you are able to do this. So I have a cohort of people that I, I go out into the mountains with. I'm not a rock climber per se. Um, it's something that I enjoy doing but I'm not somebody who pushes grades and routes and stuff like that. So I'm very much a, a endurance mountaineer. And when you say rope work, what do you mean by that? 
Well, being able to go and do multi-pitch work, being able to work with the gear on a rope, because of course, from a mountaineering perspective, you do have to know how to clip on and clip off, abseil quickly, do a range of things. And so the level of comfort that you get by going and doing rope work, you know, I've got friends in the Blue Mountains around Sydney where I go and do a couple of activities with them. You know, even in summer, being able to go through um, canyons, do canyoning on the ropes. I think that those are all skills which augment what you have to do in the outdoors. But rope work is quite important. And the rope is safety, correct? Yes. Like the, yeah. And how heavy is your pack? It depends, you know, it depends on where you are, but generally probably around 40 pounds, 20 kgs, 25 kgs to 40 pounds or so. But they can be pretty heavy. The, 40 pounds is, is plenty heavy, I think, <laughs> to be carrying, honestly. Um, the trips to Everest, is it is it primarily base camp? Like how far do you go? So for the, the leading that I do and the groups of people that I take is from a trekking perspective. So yes, mm-hmm. being able to take people in the surrounding valleys or up to Everest Base Camp. And so that's purely trekking, yes. Okay. Have you have you summited the Everest personally? I have not. No, I was fortunate enough to go into the north side of Everest, the Tibet side in 2014. I used it as training for my first 8,000er. Um, and I was on a permit for 7,000 meters. So this is possible. You can do it on the Nepalese side as well as to sign up on a lower permit. So not necessarily a summit permit. And that gives you a lot of exposure around the terrain and what's required. So I'm very grateful I've been able to have gone to the north side of, of Everest into the Tibet area, Tibet China area, because not a lot of people have been there recently. It's been quite closed off to Westerners. Um, but no, I haven't been on a summit permit. Is that something that's on your radar or is I'm just curious. Yeah, you know, I think as a high-altitude mountaineer, Everest um, is one of those, but I'm also not somebody who is necessarily a mainstream tick boxer, of the, which is why the 8,000ers that I've done are not necessarily the main ones. We've obviously had an opportunity where there's 14 mountains um, that are above 8,000 metres above sea level. They all go through icefalls that you see around Everest. They're all... Um, are dangerous they'll all go into the death zone so there's 14 of those and um, Everest is obviously the most well known because it's the highest but um, there are the 13 others and um, the opportunity that I've had to be the first to climb two of those is something which um, I really cherish Everest remains on the radar but it's not necessarily the main mountain for me got other goals as well no that that makes perfect sense to me um, yeah. And I hope that I didn't want that question to annoy you because like sort of as a mountain biker, there's always like, well, have you done Leadville? And I'm like, there's a lot of mountain, you know, like, it's like, I imagine the Everest question is sort of like that. Like, there's just from people who don't climb, you're just like, ah, oh, the Everest question. <laughs> so. it's, it is, it's a hard one because, you know, when I climbed, um, Dalagiri and went, well, absolutely Manuslu, when I summited Manuslu, people said to me, well, it's not Everest. We, we, we somebody in the press in, in South Africa said, well, it's not Everest. We don't need to talk to her. So there is this, you know, this strange sort of, you know, it's, it's Everest or bust type thing in the mainstream. And look, I do think that mountaineering has become, interestingly, a bit more mainstream recently. You've obviously got a couple of other the outdoor genres, I suppose, free slow-lo movie mm-hmm. change things. We've had the Alpinist movie win an Emmy in the past week. Um, 14 peaks was another really interesting yeah 
another interesting one, yes. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I think there's more awareness around what the outdoors can be. And I think what was really exciting was the full circle Everest team that summited this season. I think the narrative around inclusion in the mountaineering space through what the full circle team did, the first all black um, team to summit Everest, I think is really important as well. And so it's becoming more mainstream. So at least some of these other lesser known 8,000 meter mountains is becoming a bit more popular in the lexicon of, of sort of the, the mainstream. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Let's, let's circle back to where you are in this perimenopausal space and, and the symptoms that you're experiencing that, that may be barriers to other women, like continuing on or even starting, you know, this kind of pursuit. And I'm, I'm curious, like we hear a lot about anxiety. We hear about fear, like these things I can imagine could be a barrier, but also just practically speaking, um, you know, you don't want to sweat when you're in these high areas, but like you could have hot flashes. Absolutely. You know, and navigating this space, I think I'll probably say up front, you know, I'm still even navigating it myself, right? I think it's the importance of being able to have these dialogues and things like this, but you are spot on. I found that there are so many women that are stopping to go into the outdoors and to do expeditions <clears throat> because of the challenges this time in their lives present. And even for myself, you know, there I was lying on my back with my debilitating injury and it's a case of, well, do I stop or what do I do? You know, mm. and I decided that I'm just not going to allow this to, to stop me. So I do feel that some days are, are harder than others and it is a bit of work in progress as well around my own, you know, symptom self-care and things like that and but nevertheless I do think you spot on I think one of the biggest things that comes out of this is this the fear nerve uh, as you know in next level as well it's written about just that mindset and how we do struggle with um being able to just have the nerve for some of the slightly more dangerous stuff and a quick sidebar I've just come back from South Africa where I was in the Drakensberg and I went and climbed a mountain called Cathedral Peak and it involves a, a roped scramble towards the summit. And I've done this before. And um, I went with the same sort of um, support guide that I've used before in the past. And there was a section on this mountain where I've literally been able to walk across before. It's an exposed traverse, but I've been able to walk across there. And this time I was vulnerable enough to tell him, listen, I'm really struggling with this the mental side of, I don't know if I can walk across, do that, Travis. And so he actually put up a rope that I could use and I clipped to the rope and I did the same section. And at first I felt quite embarrassed about it, but then I said, no, you know, I think the important part for us is to speak up, is to share when we're feeling maybe unsafe, a bit more vulnerable. And I, and I said to him, you know, the reality is, is that I'm in a different phase in my life compared to when I did this mountain before. And, um, just work with me. And, and he said, no, that's fine. And I think that as women, we've got to be able to be in these safer nurturing spaces. And um, that's the sort of the environments that I like to be able to lead or, or support people in is, is to be able to allow the space where people can show up and say, you know what, today I'm just not having a good day or my head's not in the game. And how do we work with that as, as leaders in a nurturing environment? And so, you know, for me to observe it in myself was important. And so therefore, I do see that a lot of people and women are lose sort of that nerve. The fear nerve isn't as robust as it used to be. 
So, so what do we do? It's about being able to allow people to talk around how they're feeling, to be able to canvas people, you know, what's making them nervous and um, being able to support that, that portion of the, the starting point. I think that a lot of the physical symptoms of perimenopause and menopause um, cascade from there. But the number one reason why people don't go back into the outdoors is that they, this fear nerve gets a little bit um, tired and, and we, we don't push ourselves hard enough. Have you had the, like, I mean, there was that instance, but are there, are there ways that you personally navigate that yourself or like mental scripts that you have for yourself when you, when you encounter those kind of moments now? Yeah. There's a lot of self-talk that goes yeah. on. <laughs> That's what I was getting at. You know, and I think that it is important. I think it's important to draw on the fact that you know that you've done this before. Um, and also it's about being vulnerable enough enough to ask for the help. And I do think that the the global fact that the menopause dialogue is becoming a bit more front and center it allows us, you know, to mention it to other leaders, to mention it to people that just say, listen, this is where I'm at and um, just work with me here. And so I think that as leaders, we have to provide that environment, but as individuals, we have to be honest enough with ourselves to be able to go, it's okay, you know. And for me at first, yes, I was feeling embarrassed that I couldn't go over that that traverse that I'd normally been able to do. But once that I'd sort of spilt it to the group, listen, I'm, my nerve muscle's just not there anymore, um, work with me. I felt then a lot more comfortable. And um, I could then, and it's funny, once you cross one thing, it supports the next thing and it builds. But what happens if you just allow yourself to fall into the fear and if your fear muscle isn't stretched, then you just never go back there. And I think that we've got to keep on pushing ourselves. I like that. I like that a lot. And on the on the more like physical, practical side, have you had like hot flashes in your down suit or you know, any of that any of that stuff that would be problematic when you're on a mountain? Yeah. Fortunately I haven't had them on a rotation or summit push, but I have had them at base camp at Delegiri I started. And it's quite disconcerting because there is a safety element to this. There is a practicality in so far as if you're having significantly severe hot flashes to the point that, you know, you're absolutely sopping wet. And I have had them in my home as things have progressed where you absolutely just... Like you're a sprinkler. <laughs> yeah. And, and the reality now is that if you're in a sleeping bag and it's sub-zero degrees outside and um, you are just pouring with perspiration, and then you suddenly get cold and then this perspiration can actually freeze. And so there's some real challenges to being able to be in the outdoors. And so the importance of having, you know, wicking layers, bamboo, merino, things like that to be able to support yourself, but also the awareness of, of what is creating those hot flushes. I mean, I know for myself that sometimes that extra glass of red wine potentially is a trigger. And so you've got to make sure that you stay off of those things if these other goals are important. And so it's a bit of self-awareness, but then having some of the other things at hand to support you in this process, because once again, these shouldn't be things that um, mean that you stop going into the outdoors. Right. Yeah, I know that's, that's excellent. Excellent advice because it, it's, it's definitely, you know, I had a, was speaking to a woman who's going across Antarctica and that, you know, she had her very first one, you know, in practice. And she was just like, she didn't know it was happening. You know, she just thought it was 
she was working too hard or, you know, but it was such a strange experience because it wasn't like the normal sweat experience that you feel. Um, so, yeah, I think that I, the, the awareness, if you can identify what does trigger them, that, that does seem to be very useful too. You know, and the hot flashes is, is one thing. It's also around your own heat management. So from a mountaineering perspective, obviously, you know, the real challenges in the outdoors come down to to frostbite. And we've seen the pictures of what can happen to people if they can't control their, their heat and they get too cold. And obviously, you know, the extremities are one of the first places that is challenged because one's body will end up pulling everything to the core to save you. And so that's where, you know, your fingers and your toes become become a challenge. And so, you know, from a menopausal woman in the space it's about being able to understand what you need to monitor your heat accordingly such that you aren't exposed to these further challenges of potential frostbite and so you know it's about understanding do you need an extra hot water bottle so on the mountains what we do is we you know to to use a brand name but it's the only one that works is a Nalgene water bottle um mainly bought out of uh, of the States. And they're the ones that you could pour boiling hot water into and pop them in your sleeping bag. And so that's what a lot of us do. Um, but potentially, you know, sometimes what you have to do is wake up in the middle of the night and reheat the water. So you you do it twice if you're getting a bit chilly. Being able to use um, the sticky um, patches, you know, the, the toe warmers, they've got adhesive on them. So we tend to stick those in between one's thighs. You put them on the back of your legs where your main arteries are. So um, the toe warmers are kind of nice because you can stick them wherever you want, where you need them. And also, obviously, the hand warmers that go in the gloves and the pockets and things like this um, definitely become a lot more liberal in their use um, the older that I've got. And um, it's something which I definitely work with and support the ladies that I support as well is around these tools and mechanisms to be able to support the the heat management because because that is key. Yeah. And, and thermal regulation can get more challenging as our, our hormones change and with age, you know, and both of those things can can change how well we regulate our body temperature at extremes. Yeah. You know, and comfort is one of those important things. You're already in a rugged environment and um you know, a lot of people stop doing this because it's just like, it's too rugged and I just get too cold. I, I can't stay warm anymore. So it's about having these tools and tricks at hand that um, you can use just to augment and try and keep yourself warmer. And there's nothing wrong. At first, it was the case of, well, you'll use one pair of hand warmers just for summit push. These days, when I go on expedition, if I need one every night, I use hand warmers every night, even in base camp. So it's about having these tricks on hand to improve the level of comfort, especially if your body's struggling with that thermoregulation. Yeah, definitely. Do you um do you find that anything is different so far as hydration is concerned? Absolutely. That was the next point that I wanted to to raise is that, you know, it's spot on and once again it's it's well put into the the next level book around the our inability as women the older we get to know that we are thirsty. Yeah. That sort of thirst signal reduces especially with the impacts of the depleting of estrogen and i've seen this myself um didn't think that i was thirsty so drank less and then the knock-on effects down the line because also you've got to remember with mountaineering or even if you're taking a trek with your friends to Everest base camp is that it's at least an 11 12 day affair so if you start drinking too little on day one 
it, you might not feel too bad on day two, but you've got to make sure that you're doing things that are going to keep you okay on day 10. Right. And so, yes, one of the biggest challenges is around hydration because even this group now, it was all perimenopause, the menopausal women that I took to Everest Base Camp. And um, I noticed it's a case of, no, well, I don't feel thirsty. And so one of, you know, I feel like I'm a broken record sometimes, but I really push people in the mountains to to keep hydrated and to keep drinking because you won't feel thirsty, but your body will be in a state of dehydration. And so hydration is exceptionally important. And for me, it was quite insightful reading the book and stuff, knowing now, okay, that's why it works. It's actually my body's doing what it's supposed to be doing and it's affected by the estrogen depletion. But now the knowing why I have this feeling of lack of thirst and that I can also see it in other people as a leader too is important. Um, yeah, no, that's great. And the other important thing, of course, is that adequate hydration is needed for acclimatization. So if you as a woman in perimenopause aren't drinking enough and you are in a level of dehydration, your body's actually not going to acclimate well either. And so therefore you're actually just not going to go and achieve this goal. And so you know, hydration becomes a hugely important angle. So, you know, I do things as well. I make it up absolutely important that people drink soup every evening because later down the line when your appetite might go, if you're accustomed to having soup every evening, I know that people are getting liquids and nutrition and a bit of salt into the system and vegetables and things like that. So having these um, stop gaps to make sure that people can stay healthy is, is hugely important. And then the the other aspect is around the rest, the rest and recovery. I think that to be able to bring the rest into the daily routine is highly important from a mountaineering perspective. You know, we, we know as mountaineers, you should only be doing three things on a mountain. You should either be walking, you should be eating, or you should be resting. Um, and resting is lying horizontal um, in your sleeping bag and just letting your body adjust. And I think from a perimenopausal perspective, using that time not to necessarily have to walk around or sit in front of a fire if you're at a tea house or go and visit other people in their tents if you're on a mountainside, but just to have the rigor to go and, and rest and um, lie in your sleeping bag, I think is even more important at perimenopause. So, you know, yes, you can deal with some of the other symptoms, I suppose, in inverted commas, the hot flashes and things like that. But on a mountain, it's around the basics of the hydration that will support acclimatization and then getting adequate rest in. Is there anything nutritionally that you do differently? No, not really. I think for me, it's I'm a proponent of real food. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of bars and other things and even the dehydrated food. I know that there's some better quality stuff that's out there in the moment, but I tend to even eat real food, you know, um, the Sherpas have Sherpa rice, fried rice that they take onto the mountain for the summit pushes, and I tend to eat that as well. I, I'm a big proponent of, of real food, and I just keep doing doing that. Yeah, I think that's wise on many on many levels. Um, so the the group that you take, like, are they all experienced, or were there some new people in the group going to to base camp? Um, these were all fairly inexperienced people. They had done a little bit of trekking. And so from my perspective, I've got some experienced groups that I take. Um, I took a group of women up a mountain called Island Peak, and they hadn't done much rope work, but they were all ex-mountain bikers, competitive mountain bikers. So I knew they had the 
the stamina in them, but I got them up um, Island Peak, which was phenomenal. But this particular group to Everest Base Camp was less experienced. And so sometimes I, you know, I love working with groups at each end of the, the experience level because everybody just learns differently from the exposure and the experience. And so, yeah, this group was slightly less experienced, which means that um, there's a bit more handholding and support. But um, it's even probably even better to know that you get everybody to the goal. I enjoy that part about it. And what's the biggest thing you think that they get out of it? Personal satisfaction, you know, just the, for me, it's around nurturing people in a safe environment that they can achieve their goals. It's not me as a leader out front, making sure that, you know, I'm there. It's about me at the back, being able to nurture and support people to get to, to their space and, what they need to get out of the trip. And this particular trip was quite poignant because, um, you know, various people were carrying quite a lot of recent death with them. So mm. people around them that had unfortunately passed away. And so there was this um, subtext of, of passing and death. And so to create this nurturing environment that everybody could get to where they needed to be safely in the mental space. I think it's an important part about a leader being able to create that environment and, that's what I enjoy doing. So for me, it's about everybody gets what they need to out of the trip. Some people, it's more physical. Some people, it's more spiritual. Some people, it's just that feeling of being able to know that they can do something or in reconnecting with themselves. I think at this juncture, you know, I'm working with some women that might have stopped being in the outdoors for a couple of years. And it's a case of you can do this. You can get back into the outdoors. Um, with something else in Australia, we have Coast Trek and there was a lady that she hadn't walked a lot in the preceding sort of 10 years. She had even stopped going to the corner shop. And um, we got her to do a 30-kilometer coast trek. And for me, that is is hugely satisfying and gratifying, you know, is to be able to work with somebody who's lost the trust in themselves, who's um, just, you know, allowed life to take over. And I think that from a menopausal perspective, I think these are the real challenges. And so for me to be able to provide that nurturing environment and care to allow people to achieve their own goals, be it, you know, a 30K beach walk or a trek to Everest Space Camp is, is a really um, unique and special place to be in. What's on the horizon for yourself? For me, it's continuing getting myself ready for some big mountains, definitely wanting to go back into the 8,000 meter space. And so um, being able to build on that, I am coming to America for the next two months. So looking forward to being able to go to Washington State and um, trying some mountains over west and um, continuing building myself up to being able to do another 8,000 meter mountain next year. So lots to to prepare for and a lot to navigate. How long does it take you? Like what is the buildup for something that big? I think that with the more experience, it's around mentally knowing that one can do it. But then there's the physical stuff has to sometimes catch up as well. Obviously, I'm coming off the back of this really serious injury. So, mm-hmm. you know, for an 8,000 meter mountain, it's a good a good year away. So if I know that I'll be in the mountains in, in April, May next year, I've got a year to go and that should be sufficient. Excellent. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think this audience could benefit from from hearing? No, I think for myself, and it's just great to know that um, one doesn't have to give up. One doesn't have to stop going into the outdoors. I think that there's a lot more support out there for us women. And so even if your goal is 
going to go to Machu Picchu, if your goal is just going to be able to do something on a weekend that you might not normally have done, I think that women just need to get back into that space and doing it because we do know, you know, how the parasympathetic system can be supported by being in the outdoors and we shouldn't be scared of the outdoors by how our bodies are changing. There are ways and means of getting back into the outdoors. So just to get back there. Yeah. And I think your point of connecting back to yourself is a, is a really important one. You know, I think that women can feel like they've lost something of themselves during this time and, you know, being able to find something and maybe even find something new is a great opportunity, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Couldn't say it better. Have you found anything new? Have I found anything new? Um, just during this transition, I'm wondering if you've found anything new about yourself. I think it is partly to do with that vulnerability perspective. I think if you go full circle in this conversation, we spoke about how when I started out in the mountains, I was always the only girl in the group. I always had to be one of the guys. I had to be very quiet about some of my physical challenges. I just had to suck it up. And that's quite a mental burden to bear when you are younger. And I think that what I've learned is that one can now be vulnerable. One can say, like I shared, I got to a place where I felt particularly nervous and I needed a rope. Um, so I think I've learned about myself that it's okay to be vulnerable in this time that we're in. Um, you know, at first I didn't like the notion about perimenopause and menopause. I felt like I was staring into the corner of a wall, you know, like a naughty child that's been put into the corner. <laughs> Whereas then it was shown <laughs> so to me I have that never heard that analogy. Before. It's not a corner. I don't feel that I'm staring into a corner anymore. At the, the notion that it's a tunnel and there is light at the end of the tunnel and it's a phase that we've all just got to pass through. I think for me that's um, really helped support the fact that I don't have to even for myself stop my mountaineering. That it's a tunnel, and um, I will get through there by supporting myself, and by supporting myself, I can also support others better. Well, that's our show. Join me next week when I sit down with Dr. Catherine Ackerman, a sports medicine physician, endocrinologist, and the medical director of the Female Athlete Program in the Sports Medicine Division at Boston Children's Hospital. We talk all about musculoskeletal health and much, much more. So come on back for that one. And until then, as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends, and please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.